Take a moment and imagine that you are Luke. You've been commissioned by a certain Theophilus to write an orderly account of Jesus' life and ministry. However, your primary sources, the first apostles and most of those early church communities, most of the people are dead. There are plenty of stories circulating about Jesus, but which ones do you include? What do you think would be the most important to say about Jesus? All gospel accounts agree that Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection are the most important. The resurrection is the turning point in the Jesus movement, beginning the transformation of frightened, grieving disciples into an emboldened, empowered church. Without the resurrection, there is no Jesus movement and no church. However, Luke, along with Matthew, considers Jesus' birth also worthy of telling. So what is Luke peering back some 90 years from his time trying to tell us about the birth of Christ? Luke situates Christ's birth amid world history. Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor and perhaps the most powerful man on earth, had ruled unchallenged for about 25 years at this point. There was peace in the empire. There were wars on the frontiers, but for, there was peace for the imperial populace. But this peace was enforced at the point of a sword. For the inhabitants of Palestine, there was little to stop the Romans from doing what they wanted to do. Even the priests at Jerusalem only exercised their office with Roman approval. What Luke recalls most clearly from this time was the outrage of a census. Not like our censuses today. A census at that time was a bloodless form of violence against a subjugated people. Not only did a census determine who to tax, it also violated an ancient Hebrew taboo against counting people directly. You weren't supposed to do that. King David tried that and got into a lot of trouble for it. Luke describes another insult added to injury. Joseph of the ancient royal line of David is required to travel to Bethlehem to register. The subjugation of David's line and with them the whole people of Israel is utterly complete. Far from the romanticized picture of Joseph and Mary traveling by donkey, but really, how romantic can it be to think of a poor nine-months nine pregnant woman having to travel 90 miles back in those days on the back of a donkey? This isn't a romantic picture at all. The scene is one of imperial cruelty, reminding the holy couple and the nation who was in charge. To make matters worse, such a census sparked violent reprisals against those who obeyed the Roman summons. The Jewish historian Josephus reports that some of the zealots, radicalized Jews, would burn down the homes of other Jews who allowed themselves to be counted. So Mary and Joseph are stuck in the middle, forced to obey a humiliating journey during Mary's ninth month of pregnancy, perhaps under threat from some of their countrymen for making that journey in the first place. Some kind of peace this was. 
It was peace, sure, in that there was no wide-scale war. It was peace in that the imperial army was not pillaging the populace at the moment. It was peace in that some of the wealthier citizens were permitted to prosper. But all in all, it was a brutal, dehumanizing kind of peace. It was a peace enforced by the threat and use of violence. We think we live in a more peaceful time today, and in some respects we do. We're not under foreign occupation like Joseph and Mary were. We enjoy a standard of living that kings and emperors would have been envious of. Most of us, I would guess, feel reasonably safe in our community. We're not currently at open war with anyone. Our young men aren't being drafted for military service. However, in other ways, our time may be like Joseph and Mary's, if not worse. The peace of our world, the peace of our nation, is marked by the potential for mass violence in public gathering spaces. Perhaps you heard about what happened at the Mall of America today. It's marked by addiction, hunger, homelessness, and lack of access to medical care. It's marked by a massive incarceration system that profits from ludicrously cheap labor. Our peace is marked by protecting certain groups of people at the expense of others, just like the Roman peace of the first century. And it is a peace still enforced by the threat of and use of violence. The peace of Christ is different entirely. There's a delicious irony in the scene of Christ's birth. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is born to the couple in the room for animals because there is no room for them in the guest room. That's a refrain that Jesus will often hear. No room. The birth announcement of the Savior, the Christ, the Lord, comes not to the big shots, but to the blue-collar workers of the first century. Some shepherds outside of Bethlehem, working long hours away from their families. And the angelic song of peace is sung by the heavenly host, another term for angel armies. The armies of the heavens are singing a song of peace. That this peace given by Christ is first received by the most unlikely people. The kinds of people Mary sung about in her song in Luke chapter 1. The lowly, the hungry, those who fear God. Those people are the model citizens of God's kingdom. And the peace of this kingdom is not enforced by the threat or the use of violence. Jesus commands no army and wields no sword. Even when the, his disciples, much later on, will attempt to stop his arrest with the use of the sword, Jesus will have none of it. Jesus won't use violence even in self-defense. Instead of dealing violence, Jesus absorbs the violence of the whole world. He takes it upon himself to free us from that kind of peace and to give us his own. The shadow of the cross fell on that manger in Bethlehem. Yet there was the birth of a new kind of peace that day. 
A peace that radiates outward from the Christ rather than top down, like Caesar and Quirinius. It's a peace built on love of God and neighbor rather than on fear of imperial brutality or nationalist violence. It's a peace that lifts people up, a peace that gives hurting people wholeness rather than keeping them down. It's a peace without resentment, without fear, without hatred. It's a peace that we see embodied in this little child, this little helpless child, who didn't come to dominate us, but to serve. Here is our Lord, people of God. Come, receive his peace. Thanks be to God.